0: those of you from outside, welcome to LSE. My name is Danny Kwa. I'm Professor of Economics and International Development at LSE and Director of LSE's Sorcery Hawk Southeast Asia Center. It's my pleasure to welcome all of you to this evening's public lecture by Professor Ian Morris of Stanford University. Ian this year is also Philip Roman Chair in History and International Affairs at LSE Ideas. And we're lucky indeed to have him tonight deliver the third of his Philippe Roman lectures. Each age gets the bloodshed it needs 20,000 years of violence. Obviously, Ian has decided to take the easy way out and look at only very recent data. Now, in a few minutes, the speaker will deliver his lecture, after which he has kindly agreed to a question-and-answer session. The event will end after the Q&A at 8 p.m. Both the public lecture and the Q&A are being recorded and I hope that the entire podcast will be available online not too long afterwards. If you've brought in your mobile phones can I please ask you to put them on silent so the proceedings are not disrupted. But we do encourage tweeting about the event and in fact we would like it very much if you ask questions of the speaker using the hashtag LSE Morris. Now my job as chair of this evening, having introduced the topic, is to get out of the way as quickly as possible so the audience gets to the speaker. But I hope just this once, just this evening, you will allow me a couple of minutes to say a little bit more about the evening. And that is this. Every year, hundreds... Of fascinating and insightful and distinguished speakers come through LSE's public lecture series, and Ian is only the latest and most fascinating speaker so far. This LSE public lecture series is a goldmine of insight and inspiration that it struck some of us we should leverage to increase value even more for the benefit of the intellectual community, both at LSE and in the wider world. And so to that end, a number of us, the LSE Student Union UN Society, the LSE Southeast Asia Centre, together with the cooperation of LSE ideas, designed something that we called a Lecture Plus. In this Lecture Plus, a specific public lecture is selected and then has constructed around it an entire intellectual program of engagement. A program of engagement that takes in student workshops both before and after this lecture itself, seminar discussions, academic participation, and this evening, live public engagement. Some of these events, some of these things have been going on behind the scene for days or even weeks, surrounding the 90 minutes that this public lecture will take place. So this public lecture is not just 45 minutes of listening and thinking and then a Q&A session, but it expands to an extended experience that we hope enriches everyone involved and pays proper respect to and deeper reflection on the ideas that our speaker has generally brought us. The Lecture Plus idea widens participation to include everyone interested in the subject, not just the fortunate few who are going to get called on in this always too short a Q&A session. So tonight, you are all part of this very first Lecture Plus. I hope you have all downloaded onto your smartphones the free responseware app, or oh, if you haven't, you can do so now, and that you've all signed on to this session. At appropriate moments during the lecture this evening, our speaker will invite you to pick up your smartphone, go to Responseware, and become part of the evolving crowd thinking on this evening's topic, that all of us might help inform and guide the leading intelligence on the subject. So in addition, of course, as always, you're all invited to be part of the ongoing Twitter conversation this evening using the hashtag LSEMorris. Please ask questions there. Particularly compelling ones will be raised again in the Q&A session. I will be monitoring the hashtag throughout the evening. And again, of course, participation is as wide as possible. We will, as usual, have the Q&A session as well, after Ian's lecture tonight. Lectures Plus is an experiment. It is an innovation on the lecture format. The lecture format is a venerable thing, but it has barely changed in the last 600 years. Ian Morris' is the very first public lecture in our Lectures Plus series. And I can think of no one more thoughtful delightful, erudite, and endlessly fascinating to kick off this series. So please join me in welcoming Ian to the lecture podium. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you, Danny, for those very kind words, and um, thank you, everyone, for coming along this evening. And I, as usual, lots of other people to thank for, for, for getting me here. I'd like to thank um, Mick Cox for taking such good care of me uh, since I've started coming here in the autumn, um, and um, Bastian and uh, Emilia and uh, Mr. Roman and the Roman family who have endowed uh, the, the lecture series, and Leigh and the UN Society for organising the Lectures Plus part of it, which I'm going to do my best not to mess that up. Although, uh, as you were just saying, this is the first time they've done it, so I'm kind of hoping if I do mess it up, at least nobody will know what it was supposed to look like, and I'll get away with it this time. Um, so, okay, well, I've been um, coming here and uh, speaking at the LSE for a little while now. This is the third in a, uh, picture to start off with, the third in a series of lectures um, that I've been giving here. I've been basically developing a theme, trying to develop a theme um, during these three lectures as I've been going along. And um, the, the basic idea is that if you take a long-term perspective, uh, looking at a global level, the, the history of the whole world, you begin to see big patterns in history, how, how things have unfolded across thousands of years. Once you've established the really, these really big patterns, these trends playing out across thousands of years, we can begin talking about what kind of causes have led history to unfold on, on the big scale in these particular ways once we begin to think we've understood what the causes are driving the story down the path it's going, we can begin thinking about where the trends might take us next. We can also begin thinking about what kind of forces might be out there which could potentially derail um, future history from these trends. And I think this way of th- Thinking about the world, thinking about history, can really add a lot to our ability to make projections about um, what the future might bring. It's not the only set of skills we need, but I think it's a valuable addition to, to our armory for thinking about where the world might be going. I also think, and have been suggesting in these lectures, that when you start taking a long term um, historical perspective, when I say long term, I mean like at least 20,000 years. Like Danny was saying, this is just a scratching the surface. And actually, I will be plunging back quite a few millions of years tonight, but at least 20,000 years. When you start taking a big perspective, I think, I've found anyway, that starts pushing you toward much more materialist explanations than historians these days usually like to go for. Um, I think it pushes you toward thinking about history as, um, as history as a form of cultural evolution, something that is um, connected to and in some ways quite similar to biological evolution, not the same thing but part of the same story now seems to me uh, this is something i've been kind of talking about in different ways in uh, both the, the two earlier lectures. Seems to me that um, the, the basic storyline is that millions of years of biological evolution produced, um, among other things, produced us, gave us this miracle that all of you brought along with you this evening to the lecture. Um, something that so far as we know there is nothing else like this in the entire universe. Um, that the, the human brain has been outstripped in certain kinds of thinking by the machine We've created, but still, the human brain is the most miraculous thing in the entire universe. And this has been brought to us by millions of years of biological evolution. But having had this miracle delivered at the top end of each of our bodies, um, this then allowed us to to build something new on on top of biological evolution, cultural evolution. We're we're able to start trying out different ways of doing things, figuring out new ways to do things without waiting for our bodies to evolve biologically into new kinds of animals, the way that other animals basically have to do. Um, We are able to choose between different forms of behavior, um, to respond to the environments in which we live uh, processes that do work quite like biological natural selection but which are nevertheless sort of different as well so, the, 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 so these are some of the ideas i've been talking about in the first couple of lectures and i suggested also that there is a couple of really big things have happened over the last 20 30,000 years of history which i would say dominate the story which are the growth in scale just everything is so much bigger than it used to be. Growth in scale and also the increase in the complexity of organizations that, that humans have created. And I would say that the, kind of the, the null hypothesis, like our default assumption, ought to be that this is what the future is going to look like. Other things being equal, um, we will see continued growth in scale um, and continued increases in the complexity of, of the things that people do. Uh, so I talked about that in the first of these lectures and in the last one and this one and the the previous one and this one and then the last one I do basically going to be talking about some of the things I've looked at in the most recent books I've been writing looking at particular themes in cultural evolution the story of particular um, parts of the human experience so last time I talked about a long term history of international relations and what that perhaps tells us about what might happen in the near future Um, Next time, I'm going to talk about the evolution of human values. And again, uh, predictably, where I think that might go in the near future. Tonight, though, I'm going to talk about violence. Um, Big part of the human story, and in some ways, I think, the most controversial of these topics to talk about. At least that's what I've found in talking about it so far. It seems to generate quite strong opinions. Um, Violence, a major topic, and in some ways, some would say... one of the most important topics you can talk about i mean if you're interested in the sort of forces that might um derail predictions about where we're going in the future violence should probably be at the top of the list of the things that can derail our futures so okay that's that's enough spiel to start things off uh Long-term history, I, I think, you know, having spent some time studying the history of war and violence, I came to the conclusion long-term history really gives us three pieces of news, tells us three things about violence. Uh, there's the, the bad news, there's the good news, and the great news. There are the three things I am bringing to you this evening. So let's start off with the bad news, um, since that's um, uh, sort of an easy one. I think the, the bad news about violence is that violence is an evolutionary adaptation um, the, the, the potential to be violence, to be violent is something that's hardwired into all of us by our biological evolution. And this is something we share with most other animals. Most species of animals are capable of using violence to solve the problems they've got, um, to, to get what they want from the world. We are just the same. So that's the bad news. Violence is part of us, and we just have to learn to live with that. The good news, though, there is good news. The good news is um, that Violence responds to... um, uh, Violence is an evolved adaptation. Like other evolved adaptations, it it responds to the environment in which we operate. And humans, over the last 20,000 years, humans have driven down the rates of violent death in in human societies. We've reduced them by something like 90% across the last 20,000 years. And that's good news. Um, There's much less violence. Uh, You're you're much less likely to die violently now than you were in really any earlier period of history. And it's sort of remarkable news as well because we, um, so far as we know, we are the only species of animal that has ever done anything like this. Through cultural means, has reduced the amount of violence that it uses. Now, um, there's a lot of argument over that claim, but it's become increasingly common in the last 20 years to, to recognize that this is what's happened. And I'm sure many of you will have read Steve Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which has been the kind of most most widely read statement about the um, extraordinary way in which violence has declined. And the, the basic argument here um, is one, based on a series of major findings by anthropologists and archaeologists over the last 100 years, um, one of the big things has now become you know, beyond any dispute whatsoever is that stone age societies were normally tiny tiny um, organizations here's a, a typical 19th century typical um, illustration of an aboriginal group in australia tiny groups of people if we'd lived in the stone age you would have spent nearly all of your life in the company of say a dozen other people maybe fewer than that tiny little groups very little internal structure or organization of any kind now, in the 19th century, um, anthropologists often would describe societies, like the group you're looking at here, would describe them as savages, and would talk about the, the amount of violence they committed, and created the impression, when you read some of the, the 19th century ethnographies, created an impression that in Stone Age, contemporary Stone Age societies, it was just like an orgy of killing from the, uh, dusk to dawn, everybody killing everybody all the time. That you know, clearly was not true. The vast majority of disputes got resolved non-violently, but Compared to the societies that you know, I assume most of the people in the audience here tonight live in, compared to our societies, there were very few restraints on the use of violence. And here's a, this is a famous photograph from a, a South American group called the Yanomami who um, used a, a notorious amount of violence in settling their disputes. One of the things anthropologists increasingly are agreeing on is that in Stone Age technology societies, um, violence was used to settle more disputes than we normally use it for today. And as much debate about the actual scale on which killing went on, Um, but many anthropologists are now coming to suggest that if we'd lived in the stone age we would have faced on average you face something like a 10 to 20 percent risk of dying violently so i mean i'm not sure how many people are here tonight i mean was it 100 150 or something 400 400 wow i'm really bad at counting well so 400 I mean, you're talking about 40 to 80 of us would die violently that is a, a kind of a chilling number Now, if we fast forward, though, you fast forward from the Stone Age to the 20th century. It's a time of two world wars are fought, um, genocides are committed, nuclear weapons are used, but something like 1 to 2% of the world's population dies violently in the 20th century, an order of magnitude lower than what we think was going on in the Stone Age. Probably 100 to 200 million out of 10 billion who lived during the 20th century. Extraordinary reduction. But it's kind of a two-sided story. On the one hand, we have rising potential for killing. We get more and more powerful weapons, the potential to kill more and more people. And yet the outcome is falling rates of violent death. So a sort of a complicated story. And now here we are in the 21st century, and despite horrors like the Syrian civil war, 250,000 people dead in the last few years, the rate of violent death just keeps falling. And according to the World Health Organization, globally, we now face something like a 0.7% chance of dying violently what we're looking at here, just three, three separate chronological columns, stone age, 20th century, early 21st century, and on the vertical axis, the percentage likelihood of, of dying violently for any, any person with um, ranges for the earlier periods and a more precise figure for the early 20th century. So rates of violent death just keep falling. So I think the obvious question, how do we make sure that this trend continues as we, we, we continue to get ever worse weapons, uh, capable of killing even more people, how do we make sure the trend continues? And this is the third piece of news that I I like to think I'm bringing tonight, the great news part of this. We know how we did it. There is clear evidence to show us how we reduced rates of violent death by 90%. The problem is it's a very uncomfortable answer to say, how do we drive down the rates of violent death? Very uncomfortable. Um, But it's an answer that I think increasing numbers of scholars have been moving toward over the last 10 years. And I, I am part, part of this larger group. I wrote a book about the history of war that came out in 2014. Um, and there's a, a picture of it. Um, and so, and so uh, it's larger movement in this direction. And basically, I want to try to explain this argument tonight. And um, I'm going to be making four claims uh, in this argument. So now I'm going to sort of go through them, then say a little bit more, and then conclude and stop, is, is the plan. Oh, yeah. And also, um, the the questions for the um, Lectures Plus thing, they're going to come toward the end. So you can relax for a few minutes. You don't get to tap in your vote on me just yet, but that will come eventually. So, okay, the first of the four claims um, that I want to make is the most, I think, the most paradoxical bit of this whole thing. That what drove down rates of violent death over the millennia was war itself. And what I mean by this is that um, war has been the big driver in creating larger and stronger governments, and bigger governments have been the main proximate cause of reducing rates of violent death. So by by fighting 10,000 years of wars, people created larger and more organized societies that drove down rates of violent death for their members. Um, War has consistently been the major force in creating these larger societies. And the, the reason this happened, the reason that larger societies drive down the rates of violent death within themselves, not because their rulers are virtuous, that we've, you know, throughout thousands of years been ruled by a bunch of saints. It's actually because the rulers have been cynical. And here are some particularly cynical-looking um, ancient Assyrian rulers for you. What, what rulers want, overwhelmingly, what rulers want is they want people to be quiet and go to work and pay their taxes, give the rulers the money and not cause bunch of trouble so like say um say the the director of the lse or craig calhoun right the director of the lse yeah what he wants is professor danny Quar to show up for work every day not cause much trouble for him Um, you know danny is an internationally known scholar so all these students are going to want to come to the lse pay fees that will percolate up and enrich the director of the lse he he really wants that what he does not want, that i'm told came terrifyingly close to happening um, in the autumn uh, semester. What he does not want is that when Danny gets interviewed by another member of the faculty, Professor Mick Cox, he does not want them to draw weapons and attack each other on the stage and kill each other because then he will lose revenue. The LSE will be the poorer for it. And I'm I'm sure he cares deeply about you too. uh, But uh, the LSE will be poorer for it. And this this is not a complicated concept. Rulers have grasped this since time immemorial. You want quiet taxpayers go about their job who do not slaughter each other every time they have a disagreement. The the more you're able to succeed in pacifying your society and getting your people to do this, the more successful you are as a ruler. And of course as a ruler you're in constant competition with other powerful people within your society. And in competition with the rulers of other societies, in competition with the the poorer members of your society who might rise up against you, all these things are going on at the same time. The more you can pacify your people and get them to quietly pay their taxes, the more successful you're going to be. Now that, I think, is a sort of, I think, a good generalization about the whole of political history in like a minute and a half. But of course the problem is with these huge generalizations, there are always exceptions to the generalizations and you don't have to think for very long to start coming up with the exceptions. What I call the the what about Hitler problem, which you can exchange for the what about Stalin or the what about Mao or the what about Idi Amin or whoever your favorite mad dictator happens to be. The, the, The what about the bad guys problem. There are a lot of rulers in history who don't begin to fit this general picture I was just um, giving for you. But the the thing is, of course, an obvious thing, um, picking out especially bad or especially good rulers is never, and dwelling on them, is never actually going to prove anything. Um, What we're looking at here is a very, very long-term process that only... Uh, only works when it plays out over thousands of years. And um, actually, I thought of a, a good name for this. A, few, a couple of years ago, I was giving a lecture about this book uh, in Kansas City, which, as some of you will know, Missouri is the, the home state of the U.S. President Harry S. Truman. And um, I, I was talking about it actually in the Q&A session after the lecture, and just it suddenly occurred to me there's this um, famous story that at one point a journalist—I mean, and some of you will know—Harry Truman. Not everybody thought Harry Truman was the best president the U.S. ever had. His stock has gone up a lot lot since he stopped being president, with the time he's kind of unpopular. And a journalist asked him, you know, clearly trying to get a rise out of him, and said, So so um President Truman, what is your definition of a great president? And Truman thought for a minute and he said, A great president is a president who is right fifty one percent of the time which I thought was a very funny line Um, but this this is Truman's law I think this is what I'm, I'm thinking about here I'm not saying that all rulers throughout history have pushed their societies toward being bigger, safer, richer places but over the long run enough have that across 10,000 years, the net effect has been a driving down of the rates of violent death that now adds up to something like a 90% decline in rates of violent death. The long-term pattern, I I think, is unmistakable. And this graph, I'll say right now, this graph is a a huge oversimplification of this long-term pattern, and I will say a little bit about how there are occasions when the exceptions to the trend can cover vast areas and last for centuries, but um, the the very long-term pattern, I think, is Unmistakable it took ten thousand years, but we are now ten times less likely to die violently than we wouldn 't have been in the stone age so that 's my first claim about the, the, the long term history of war. Second claim I would say war is the worst possible way to go about creating larger, safer societies, and yet it 's pretty much the only way humans have found to do this. And this is a key point in the argument I make, um, because one of the big problems you always face during long-term history is trying to distinguish between correlation and causation. That you can say, well, over 10,000 years, we see the evolution of larger and larger societies. We also see declining rates of violent death Therefore, the two are connected. Well, you know, how, how do you know the two are connected? How do you know it's not just a coincidence? I mean, famous well, famously in some circles, anyway. Famously, years that have moon landings, humans landing on the moon, also have more red-haired children born than years that don't have moon landings. And yet, shockingly, there is no causal link between the two. So, yeah, you know, I don't want to make that kind of argument, the red-haired moon landing argument. Um, I'm claiming that there is a causal connection here. And this uh, point that war is the worst way to create these societies but seems to be pretty much the only way we've found this is a necessary component of any causal argument. It's a depressing component, but again, it seems to me the evidence is clear. It's really difficult to find exceptions, to find larger, safer societies that have been put together without violence or the threat of violence being a key part of the story. And um, I spent some time thinking about possible exceptions. You know, there's always exceptions. There are bound to be exceptions I'm I'm missing. But um, the one that's looked to me like the the most important potential exception uh, would be the European Union. I mean, this is a remarkable, truly remarkable development in political history. 500 million people have agreed to give up large parts of their national sovereignty with virtually nobody getting shot in the process. I mean, this sounds very much like an exception to uh, the the argument they're making. It's a big exception. Um, It's one I've been thinking about uh, quite a bit Um, recently. uh, A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of seeing... uh, your. Your fearless leader, David Cameron, giving a lecture about this at, at Davos. Here's David Cameron lecturing, telling us, Europe looks so much better this way. Um, so um, I've been mean, thinking about this a little bit since then. Uh, um, you know, 500 million people gave up much of their sovereignty and no one get, got shot. And yet, the other side of the story, of course, the European Union is formed during the Cold War. It's formed under the American umbrella, it's formed in the context of a face off with the Soviet Union um it seems to me that war and the threat of war were absolutely central to the formation of the european union this would not have happened had it been for the fact that world war ii had just happened and it seemed to many people that world war iii was quite likely to happen in the near future um seems to me that the european union is absolutely the child of war and the threat of war and i think this is true of pretty much all the other obvious sounding exceptions to to my generalization I think one reason why the European Union is now experiencing such hard times is that some of the uh, the war and threat of war forces that have been there in its creation are, are no longer there. I think that has a lot to do with the problems it, it's beginning to experience. And so the conclusion I reached was that humans... Hardly ever, we, we hardly ever give up our right to settle problems by force if we feel like doing that unless we're forced to give that up by someone who can wield greater force. And this, of course, this is not a terribly original argument. This argument goes back to 1651, as I'm sure many of you will be aware, to Thomas Hobbes. I mean, this is what Hobbes speculated in his book Leviathan. We're now, though, in a position, I think, that we have evidence to prove the truth of Hobbes' claim. So that's the second of my claims. Third of my claims. Over the long run, um, war hasn't just made the world safer, it's indirectly also made made the world a richer place. And this, again, you're very paradoxical, counterintuitive conclusion to reach, but it's one that I think the long-term evidence does drive us towards. I mean, war is a matter of destruction, rape, pillage, creates wastelands, Um, a famous Roman line, they create a wasteland and call it a peace. Here, Mm -hmm. the Romans are destroying a Dacian village to save it. Um, War creates wastelands, and yet what we see over and over again is that after the Wars of Conquest, you get the creation of larger and safer societies. And it can take centuries sometimes to move in that direction. Larger, more complex societies, the more sophisticated divisions of labor, the kind of thing the Roman world produced out of its Wars of Conquest, the great city of Rome itself, aqueducts carrying water uh, across what's now miles of desert in Tunisia, um, used to be the most fertile agricultural land in the world 2,000 years ago. The ships um, that carry Roman grain around the Mediterranean. More sophisticated divisions of labor are made possible by the creation of these larger states by war. Over the long run, war has created larger political units that made people richer as well as safer. Conquerors and conquered alike. Which again, very counterintuitive claim, um, but it seems to me to be true. And it's a pattern I think we can see repeated over and over again. So, okay, if, if these three claims are right. Then I think a fourth claim. Um, uh, then we have to conclude. Here we go. The three claims. We have to conclude that war has been good for something. I and mean, of course, it would be insane to say war is good for everything. It'd be insane to say war is a desirable way to accomplish these things. But the. Facts of the case seem to me to be that war has been good for something. Um, It's been the only way people have found to create larger, more organized societies that have driven down rates of violent death and made people richer, albeit at a terrible cost. I think it's paradoxical and uncomfortable, but true. So those are the first three claims. In the long run, war has been good for this particular thing. I'm so good at it, in fact, I would say, that my fourth claim is that war is now putting itself out of business altogether. Um, I think if, if you were the, like the, the infamous space alien, you know, coming to Earth and you observed this long-term story, I think what you would probably conclude is that, that the trend seems to be that wars have driven the creation of these larger societies. Um, we're probably going to have another great war and the formation of a, a world government which will drive rates of violent death down perhaps all the way to zero. However, as pretty much anybody with any sense knows, that is highly unlikely to happen. We've gotten so good at fighting um, that were we to have such a war, there would not be any people to prevent from killing each other anymore. have the potential to kill everybody. By the 1980s, there were more than 70,000 nuclear warheads in the world. And most of the war games that the U.S. ran to try to figure out what might happen if there's a a real nuclear war, they they, they almost all came to the conclusion we're talking about a billion people dead in the first week or two of such a war. Quite possibly everybody dies in the aftermath of such a war. So, okay, well, the the book that I wrote um, uh, basically... Try to tell this story tracing the history of rates of violent death across the last 10 or 20,000 years. But I think the, the obvious question to ask is well, you know, if, if what I'm saying is true, why? You know, why does the history of violence work in this peculiar, counterintuitive way? And I think to answer that question, you've got to go beyond long-term history to very long-term history. Um, And start thinking a little bit about the biological evolution of violence. Because I think that explains a lot about the human experience with violence. And this is an area where we've seen enormous advances in the last 50 years. It's kind of weird to think about this now, but 50 years ago, there had been almost no study of um, the other great apes, our closest genetic kin, almost no study of the other great apes in their natural habitats. And um, the the main pioneer in this area, very famously, uh, was the ethologist Jane Goodall, who um, set up this Gombe research station in Tanzania in the 1960s, studying the behavior of the chimps of Tanzania. And she became like an international superstar, wrote a series of articles for the National Geographic magazine, a series of TV documentaries that mainly focused in the late 60s on the lovable antics of the the chimps of Gombe. And I've seen some of the, uh, you can still find them on YouTube. some of the 1960s documentaries. They are really, really cute. I I highly recommend them. However, there's always a but. In 1973, the story went sadly off the rails Um, when Jane Gombe and her research team discovered that the chimpanzees they were studying, the two groups of chimpanzees they were studying, had gone to war with each other. And um, the two groups went to war. The, the males of one group killed all the males in the other group. They beat and raped and abducted nearly all the females from the other group. They, it basically, they not only went to war, they fought a genocidal war of total destruction. And um, the winning group took over most of the territory of the losing group after annihilating all of the males and kidnapping most of the females. Now... When this news came out, people were, were quick to realize humans and chimpanzees, we share 98% of our DNA. Does this mean we are natural born killers? Humans and chimpanzees evolved from the same stock, that both species are natural born killers. Huge debates blew up in uh, evolutionary circles over this. Very, very nasty debate as well. But it took a, 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 an important turn in the 1980s. In the 1980s, Across the other side of the Congo River in Central Africa, mile wide in places much too wide for apes to swim across, um, primatologists began to find something extremely different from what Godall and her colleagues had found with the chimpanzees in Tanzania. Um, The primatologists began to study in their native habitats bonobo chimpanzees, which is a a completely separate species of chimps. Um, There's only identified as a separate species back in the 1920s. They look very similar to regular chimps. Uh, The bonobos, though... Bonos are very different behaviorally from regular chimpanzees. When, um, among regular chimpanzees, um, if a group of chimpanzees from one, um, one band meets up with one or two chimpanzees from another band, very often the result is violence can be lethal violence. If groups of bonobos meet up in the jungle, the result is almost never violence. The result is very often what we see um, these two bonobos doing here, what primatologists call by the decorous name of genitogenital manipulation. Uh, The rest of us have a very different name for what these two um, bonobos are doing, but um, bonobos resolve disputes and tensions through sex, where chimps are much more likely to resolve them through violence. Um, the journalists, of course, immediately jumped on this. The bonobos are christened the, hi- the hippie chimps, uh, the chimps that make love, not war. Now, what, what, the reason I'm telling you this, is not just to show you animal pornography, um, uh, not, not that I need any excuse to do that, of course, but uh, the reason I'm telling you this is that bonobos also share 98% of their DNA with us. They're genetically very, very close to the regular chimpanzees obvious conclusion from the study of bonobos, um, we're not hardwired to behave violently. Um, We share equal amounts of DNA with both of these species. And this work led many, led a number of biologists to start thinking more seriously about the evolution of violence. And this is what has led to the conclusion violence is an evolved adaptation. Um, almost every, not every, but almost every species of animals has evolved to be capable of using violence to get what it wants. But each species has evolved toward a separate kind of equilibrium use of violence. Like say, your lions and lambs, to take a nice biblical example. I mean, lions are much more violent than lambs uh, and they when, when lamb, lambs actually do fight and when they do fight they fight in different ways and for different reasons from lions each species has got different natural endowments different habitats you know, everything's different and they've evolved in different directions toward different equilibrium uses of violence so each species has a different use of violence also because each individual within each species has a different use of violence and anybody who's spent much time around animals knows this um, and so you know, you probably do get like pacifist lions and aggressive lambs i mean i'm sure you do Um, but the the thing is that the reason the species evolves toward an equilibrium use of violence it's like say and i say for the sake of argument say say bastian in the front row down here bastian is a lion and bastian is a particularly aggressive lion bastian thinks that every problem in the lion world can be solved by attacking the other lions and so he does this now Bastian is less likely than the average lion to pass his genes on to the next generation because he's going to get hurt doing this he's going to get hurt sooner than he would if he had the sort of equilibrium level of violence and say Marta is a, a, you're a pacifist lion, you never ever use violence no matter what the circumstances, Marta is extremely unlikely to pass many genes on to the next generation because lions are carnivorous and so if you're a pacifist lion this is just not going to go well and it's the same for lambs and it's the same for humans as well we humans, all of us differ with our predisposition to be violent but as a species we have evolved the same as all the other species of animals we've evolved as a species and evolved uh, here we are, are, evolving into our modern form of human we've evolved to have a specific equilibrium use of violence we evolved um, around the edges of the great uh, rainforest uh, uh, this is my point of work I'll just wave my arm, and yeah. Here's the great central rainforest in Africa, and we evolved basically around the edges of, um, of that great central rainforest, and we evolved to have a, an equilibrium level of violence. We evolved to, you know, ballpark is about 100,000 years ago, um, and, and this... This is the the process, of course, that produced the 2.7 pounds of magic I was talking about at the beginning, at the the tops of our our, our bodies. So we evolved to have an equilibrium level of violence. Guessing from the evidence of the hunter-gatherer societies uh, that survived into modern times, probably rates of violent death in the 10 to 15% range, which is roughly where, where chimpanzee rates of violent death are as well as it happens. So we evolved just like all the other species except for the fact that we evolved completely differently from all the other species because the big brain gave us the potential to evolve culturally as well as biologically. We can respond to the pressures on us by changing the ways we behave, to maximise the the payoffs um, from our behaviour. Whereas other animals only do that by evolving biologically. Chimps and bonobos evolved across about 1.3 million years from a shared common ancestor. They evolved biologically into different kinds of animals. Whereas we are able to evolve uh, evolve culturally as well to use violence in different ways than we used to do. And the, the big change, I think, in the ways we used violence really started 10 to 15,000 years ago after the end of the last ice age. Um, global warming kicks in, because of course that's what the end of the Ice Age is, global warming kicks in, and then as now I mean it affects the whole planet, but affects different places in different ways and one of the things that happens at the end of the Ice ages, uh, ice Age is there's a band of latitudes, what um, to annoy some of my colleagues I call the lucky latitudes, some people don't like that name uh, across the old world and the new world where um, plants and animals that could be domesticated were, were available to humans and at the end of the Ice Age, domestication the beginning of farming, becomes possible in these places before it becomes possible anywhere else. Farming begins, population explodes in the lucky latitudes, um, they become increasingly crowded, because farming population density is much higher than hunter-gatherers. They become increasingly crowded, and a remarkable thing begins to happen. In the world of hunter-gatherers, when two groups... Uh, struggle violently against each other if one starts to win the others often have the option of going away and hunting and gathering someplace else so you, where you live has become uncomfortable you go away someplace else the more crowded the landscape gets the less easy it is to do that for farmers it's often very difficult to just up stakes and move away so a new thing starts happening Um, uh, after the beginning of agriculture when there are wars between communities the winners can start absorbing the losers and swallowing them up into a bigger community and this we have direct evidence of this going back many thousands of years this is perhaps the oldest piece of evidence roughly 5,000 years ago um, from Egypt, winners swallowing up losers to form bigger societies, societies get bigger the governments get stronger and more centralized, the governments start changing the payoffs to using violence for their subjects, making, violence, making the costs of violence rise, the, payoffs from vi- the, the the gains from using violence fall, driving down the rates of violent death. And in my book I um, made a, a very ballpark estimate that in the ancient empires of 2,000 years ago we're talking about rates of violent death that have fallen to say the, the 2.5 to 5% range, driving down these rates of violent death. Uh, and this is why I, I say in the title of my lecture, each age gets the bloodshed it needs. You cannot have big complex agrarian empires if you have rates of violent death at the level hunter-gatherers had. So driving down the rates of violent death because humanity basically becomes caged. Um, Caging was the name for this process invented by a former LSE professor, Michael Mann. Now, um, this process goes on and on and on over the centuries. But things uh, take another dramatic turn, I think, starting in the 18th century AD, where the scale of the organizations people are beginning to create, especially the European colonial empires and trade networks, the scale gets so big that the the nature of the, the process begins to change as well. And this is something um, identified first by Adam Smith, the, the Glasgow School of Economics here rather than London, um, Smith recognizes in the 18th century that the, the profitable way to live in the world is not the way that great emperors have thought for so long. You, you conquer people, you bring them into a state, you tax them, um, you tax their trade routes. Smith realizes that we're, we're tying the world together in a new kind of way. We're creating these larger organizations on the back of the, uh, the triumph of European colonial empires. We're creating these larger organisations of trade and if we stop trying to conquer everybody um, and we leave people free to truck and barter this will actually make everybody richer Now, we also recognize that the only way you can do that is if you do have an organization um, that has sufficient military force at its disposal to enforce the laws of trade, to enforce the freedom of the seas, to enforce free markets. It's like he's saying um, in a way that to have the invisible hand of the market, you must also have the invisible fist of a kind of super state, which is able to police a um, a global empire of trade. And in some ways, at least, after about 1815, Britain begins to fulfill this role in the world, begins to become a Globocop. Leviathan has been kind of scaled up into a super Leviathan um, by the 19th century. And the result of this was, in many ways, was hugely successful um, for many parts of the world. But it also had a lot of very paradoxical results. Um, Britain became the sort of global giant by creating these empires of free trade policing these empires of free trade um but in order to be prosperous and successful because it needed people overseas to be able to buy its goods you you cannot be an industrialized economy if everybody else is dirt poor um British systems of free trade not only created the preconditions for other countries to become rich and industrialise as well, but actually kind of depended on the other countries industrializing and becoming rich as well. And so by the later 19th century, especially after about 1870, Britain was finding that this a sort of paradoxical thing again, that because Britain was so successful at being a Globocop, creating a, a stable international order of free trade, this was enriching some other countries at least, to the point that it was now getting difficult for Britain to carry on policing this this empire of free trade. And so the countries in particular, here's just a a, a much reproduced um, graph originally drawn by Paul Bayrock, looking at uh, levels of GDP in different major economies from 1820 to 1913. By about 1870, um, Germany and particularly the United States are getting so rich that it's becoming very difficult for Britain to intimidate them to following its rules and doing what it says. The risk of other countries starting to feel that they're in a position to challenge the British global order increases as that global order becomes more successful. So again, very, very paradoxical set of results. and This, I would say, this has a lot to do with why the 20th century saw these global wars. Um, Vast conflicts sweeping the world in the 20th century. Here's just a selection of pictures of the the vast conflicts. Um, As Britain becomes less and less able to act like a policeman of a global international order, the temptations to other countries to take a risk on using violence to challenge that order, the temptations grow and grow. Um, Until by 1914, of course, the, the entire system begins to collapse. Roughly 100 million people are killed in the two world wars, Western European powers swept away, and the world simplifies um, back into two major camps. The British global order collapses, a period of international anarchy ensues, after 1945 things simplify um, into two major camps. By 1945, it's beginning to become clear, though, that war is putting itself out of business, um, People are basically adapting rapidly to the changing payoffs of using violence. Once nuclear weapons come into the world, it becomes clear to almost everybody that major power war is simply unthinkable. Now, the the, the speed at which people's understanding of the functions of violence has changed really is quite astonishing. If I had been standing here, not in 2016, but 50 years ago, in 1966... Um, So we're talking just a few years after the the Berlin Wall has gone up, uh, two, three years, whatever it is, after the Cuban Missile Crisis. If I'd stood here and said to you that one day, not so far in the future... All those commies in Russia are going to wake up one day and say, this whole communism thing, it's just not working for me anymore. I'm going to stop doing it. I'm going to tear down the Berlin Wall. I'm going to dismantle the Soviet Empire. Um, we're not going to have a thermonuclear war. Uh, a couple of hundred people are going to get shot, mostly in Romania. But that's going to be it. And the West wins. Now, if I'd said this to you in 1966, um, you know, the LSE probably would have demanded its money back at that point. I mean, a raving lunatic you've brought in. Yet, you know, obviously, this is what happened. In the 1980s, the Soviet leadership concludes that violence cannot solve its problems. Whatever happens, they are not going to turn violent. Um, For every 20 nuclear warheads in the world in 1986, there's now less than one. We no longer have the power to kill everybody in the world in the space of a few days. There are, there are more formally independent governments today than ever before, and yet more people are integrated into global networks of trade and culture than ever before, and we also have um, lower rates of death than ever before. So here is a, um I'm oh, so just going to show you, the, the sort of power um, available at the hands of the American global hegemon that emerged since 1989, dwarfs anything the British Empire ever had I mean the, the scale of American dominance since 1989 makes the British Empire look like a, a child's game extraordinary transformation but this was a slide I meant to show you of the, the long term history of these rates of violent death and this is where I mentioned earlier there are periods when the exceptions become so prevalent that rates of violent death for centuries spike back up, like the middle ages there which I've squeezed out of my talk but I'm happy to talk about it at interminable length given a chance, but I won't I won't, um, I will wrap up instead so to conclude, my conclusion. War, I would say, has been good for something. In the very long term, war had the paradoxical effect of making war safer, of making the world safer. It did so at a terrible price, but it seems to me that we humans are not able to do it in any other way. And so that, I would say, that's what war has been good for. Last question, though, what is war going to be good for? If this has been the story so far, what can we say about the trends of the future? And I think that the long-term history, that the trends do warrant some... Tentative predictions about where things might go, and so I'm just going to say a couple of words about one of them and then stop. And I'll be quick. So I mentioned a minute ago that you know after about 1870 that the British globo cup begins to break down as powerful, wealthy, industrialized rivals emerge, especially um Germany and the United States. So this is clearly underway in the 1870s. 40 years on, in the 1910s, Britain is no longer able to raise the cost of violence to levels that will deter other challenges, the result is, of course, 1914. Now, I was talking a moment ago about how, you know, since 1989, we've seen the emergence of a new global order, an American Globocop. To many people, it seemed that since at least about the year 2000, the U.S. Globocop has been progressing down a path alarmingly similar to the British global Cup of the late 19th century Though the success of the American international order allowed other countries to enrich themselves spectacularly particularly China now um, as I was saying there's currently this massive U.S. Um, military uh, military economic dominance but 40 years on by the 2040s what, what is the world going to look like at that point? I, mean, I showed you... Uh, oh, actually, this is my slide, Massive American Military Dominance. I cannot resist showing this one. This is a robot plane capable of taking off and landing from the deck of an aircraft carrier. That is the most difficult task a human pilot is ever asked to do. I mean, um, pretty, pretty much any flyers will tell you this is the most difficult thing uh, that a human pilot can ever be asked to do. A robot can do this for itself with zero human input. American robots. No other country has robotic weapons that begin to approach this sophistication. The, the, the military gap currently between the U.S. and everybody else has never been paralleled before in the history of the world. A massive, massive dominance. But where will it be 40 years on? And I showed you this graph a moment ago, you know, the experience of the British Empire in the late 19th century as um, other countries enriched themselves. Here's a graph of a 25-year period, late 20th, early 21st century. You don't need me to stress the disturbing similarity in some of the trends going on. Uh, And many analysts have been concluding that possibly over the next 30, 40 years, we're entering a world where the U.S. can no longer raise the costs of violence for other governments that begin to think that maybe violence is a way to solve their problems and get what they want in the world. Maybe, some people conclude, we are heading toward a nuclear 1914, some point in the next 40 years. Now, if that's true, it it points toward a conclusion that I found is quite unpopular in some circles. Uh, And that conclusion is that if you want peace, keep America strong. And I find that conclusion tends to go down better in America than in other countries. <laughs> don't know why, but not yeah, yeah, if you want peace, you want a strong America. Um, now not everyone likes that conclusion, and those of you who don't, you, you are in luck because we now finally reached the point where we're about to end where you get to pass your judgment on these incredibly true statements that I have been uh, sharing with you. Uh, and we get some questions organized by the Lectures Plus people, and they gave me a tutorial this morning on what to do. It's almost certain I'm going to mess this up. But let's go and see what happens. And I was supposed to say that the, uh, the ID code thing is 475662, if you want to log in. Sorry, and... it's
0: 976. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry, we switched that on you. <laughs> 976529. Now, it's that was not my of... fault. Sorry. <laughs> you
1: pulled a dirty trick. Let's see what happens when I press the button. Oh, it worked. Okay, great. So, so here's a question for you then. Um, do you think that rates of violent death will continue to decline across the next 100 years? That's a good question. And it's just a yes-no question. And you press a button uh, on and your little Yes, that's things. right.
0: Press a button on your responseware. If, you're having issue, if you've had issues downloading the responseware app, you can also go to the website responseware.com. So just all one word, responseware.com, and enter the session ID 976529. If you are participating in that, your smartphone or your tablet should show exactly the screen that allows you to then vote your view. So we'll just wait a couple of minutes while yeah, people told me to patient up. They
1: and not, not, not rush things. I this, this is sort of nerve-wracking, though, because um, you all get to vote on me now. Uh, which I, I mean, I, I don't approve of this democracy thing one bit. So, <laughs> but uh, I um, last summer I got invited to. What was actually the most fun conference I have ever been to um, is this thing, uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of it, it's called Freedom Fest, and it's held in Las Vegas every summer, which immediately means it's going to be a little different from the usual run of conferences. And um, it bills itself as the largest gathering of free thinkers in the world. And what it is, it's this massive libertarian gathering, where it's all all these people who basically think that government is the source of all evil in the world. Everything that any government and ever does is entirely wicked mm. and um and libertarians i mean maybe, maybe the room is full of libertarians for all i know i hope not so the are <laughs> going to lose these votes really badly but i mean um libertarians are really really interesting people because i mean on the whole they their political views tend to be what you'd normally call sort of right-wing but then they also have some very left-wing views i mean they you, you unanimously agree all drugs should be legal um all forms of sex should be legal uh, they then get you know, tangled up over some things like you know um, the, uh, underage stuff but you know, basically everything should be legal and it was up to individuals to decide what they want to do so I was invited to come and give this talk about how government has been the best thing that ever happened to the world <laughs> because it made the world safer and richer and the reason I am telling you this long rambling story is that um, they, they, they live, I mean they're actually it's a really great organisation because they are you know, very very serious about their beliefs and they believe and what they stand for, and so they make a point of bringing in people they know will not agree with them. Ooh, have I done something else wrong? Uh, bringing in people they know will not, dis- not not agree with them to have these debates. And so I got paired um, with a uh, hard cut. Oh wow. Look at that. That came up now. A hardcore libertarian to talk about my theories on the history of war. And before the debate started, um, the the organizer had the audience take a vote on whether they believed me or believed um, the uh, esteemed uh, lady with whom I was debating. And I was just crushed in this vote. It was like there's like a couple of hundred people there, and all but about three of them um, said yes, yes, of course, the war, government and never ever got to anything at all. And so, you know, this is not going to go very well. Um, and so we did the debate, and actually, I, I did not win the vote we took at the end of the debate, but I almost did. I was so pleased with myself. I got almost 40% of the votes. So if I get Excellent. less than that tonight, I'm going to feel particularly <clears throat> devastated.
0: Um, but, well, look, I've been talking kind of a lot. Well, no, I- no, no, but, you know, Ian, I... I think you've actually very successfully hedged your bets (laughs) on the answer to this question because as people are thinking about this question, you've laid out how the different time horizons that matter factor into the people's perceptions of what the right answer to this question is. So whichever way this vote comes out, you win.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is such a great way of looking at the world. (laughs)
0: but I see that the, the count is steadily rising. If we give it a couple more minutes, and then we'll have a, a few more of these uh, questions that you've, you've helpfully prepared for us. So if we have a little bit of a lull, what's going to happen next is that Ian will, through magic, reveal how this population of people who've been listening to the lecture think about the answer to this question. We will then be able to get a sense of both your own views on the persuasiveness of the argument about how violence, the prevalence of violence is changing. The rather cold-hearted attempt to bolster American hegemony (laughs) in this world you know, which fits, of course, very well with the, the theoretical reasoning you've laid out.
1: But it's, it's good for you, Danny. It's good for
0: I you. I suppose it is. <laughs> um, okay, I think we've steadied on. So okay, you're when, ready when you're ready, just press the, oh, right. the mouse see button.
1: The moment of tension here. It's a bit like the Oscars. What's going to happen?
0: <laughs> there we go. Ooh,
1: yes. Well, yes, good, good. That is the right answer. Congratulations, audience. <laughs> phew that was a close call all right so okay so that was the first we've we got a whole we got three of these questions all together so i think um, i've uh, managed to forget what the second one was so let us find yes, out So let's find out the second question is ah yes going back to what i was talking about earlier uh, at the beginning of the lecture is the european union really an example of a bigger safer more prosperous society that is formed without war or the threat of war there's a good question um, don't want to guide you in any particular direction on, on this one. Uh, I'll give you a moment to, to pass judgment.
0: Because one might point out that here, sitting in London, we're also poised on the brink of a great debate...
1: Yes, you have a real vote on about
0: this. ...about whether this country will continue to be part of this, this union. So yeah. we're, we're actually thinking about a little bit of a straw poll... On what a referendum might look like on one particular aspect of Britain in the European Union, and obviously this is something that excites our audience. Look at this vote count ah, racing up there this time.
1: <laughs> I mean, when, when I was a teenager living here in England back in the 1970s, you know, the, the European Union was on the TV all the time, and you know, nothing would get me to turn the TV off faster than some idiot going on about what some bureaucrat in Brussels was saying about what kind of biscuits I could eat, or, or this kind of stuff. And now, I mean, I, and perhaps it's because I don't live in the European Union anymore, but it, I mean, it seems to me this has really been one of the most extraordinary experiments in the entire political history of the world, absolutely. what they, they've been doing uh, in the last 70 years. Absolutely, and yeah. you know, how it turns out, I think a, a lot hangs on, on this, and a lot hangs on the British vote. So after we found out what the score is, I will tell you the correct vote in the 2017 <laughs> referendum too, in case you're wondering. Okay, should we go to the answers?
0: For, let's All look right. for the answers. What
1: do we think? Is the European Union really an example of a bigger, safer, more prosperous society that is formed without war or the threat of war? The answer is no excellent very good answer um and the the answer to the 2017 or i guess could be this year couldn't it but before the end of 2017 when you vote on staying in or not the answer is is yes stay in the european (laughs) union so i thought you would want to be told that Uh, and then the third the last of these questions oh yeah this is a nice one will the breakdown of the Will the breakdown of the British Globocop between the 1870s and 1910s prove to be a good analogy for the breakdown of an American Globocop between the 2000s and 2040s? So, yeah, are we we doomed? I mean, are we heading in the same direction as uh, the world in the 1910s? We're cranking up there now.
0: This question, even more exercises our audience than the previous one. I wonder, Ian, if you could—you might want to uh, take a minute to reflect on your own personal background, having lived on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you do you do you have a particular? Do you feel a particular resonance for how the American global cop has run a successful hegemonic affiliated international order?
1: Well, I mean, one of the great things about being a Brit in the US is people think that because the way of the way you Shh. talk, that you actually know stuff. I mean, it's really remarkable. I found when I lived in Britain, when I opened my mouth, everybody just ignored me totally. Um, but in the US, you can get a long way on the basis of the accent. And um, some people think that this is a topic on which we exiled Brits yes. have a particular um, source of extra knowledge. Absolutely. And I, you know, I would like to think that's the case. Um, I don't actually think it's the case. Uh, although One thing I have found really interesting, you know, there's a lot of really sort of panicky writing gets done in the US about the direction America is going and what's going to happen to the world and everything, how the entire world is falling to pieces because America is no longer bestriding it. Um, and it's easy to sort of laugh at all this stuff. But then I discovered that there was a tremendously similar literature in Britain in the late 19th century. Right. Many, many of the themes are just being reprised by Americans now as, you know, as Americans become concerned about some rather similar things. So I think that is actually highly amusing. And the, the thing things that people currently say about Americans, about how they've got too much money, um, too many guns, too small brains, all these sorts of things. These are exactly what people used to say about Britain. Um, And now they think we have big brains in Britain. It's a remarkable story. But okay, we've got 89 votes in. Let us see what the wisdom of the people is on this issue. In some some ways, ways. (laughs) good, good hedged bet. Okay, I think that's probably about as good a bet as you can get. So, okay. So let me wrap this uh, this part of the, the proceedings up altogether. So. Okay, well, you were just asked this question about the, the U.S. Globo Cup and everything. Well, it seems to me, let's say um, if, you'd, if the, the winning vote had been C, no, which did get quite a lot of votes, if you think that the, the analogy is not a good one, maybe you think the American Globo Cup could survive past the 2040s, you know, outlasting the track record of the British. If you think that is the case, do you think, could it go on forever and I think the answer there has got to be no. I mean, nothing ever has gone on forever. Um, we live in a world where the historical record suggests that the breakdown of, of um, state governments or global governments leads to periods of intense unrest and mounting conflict. We also live in a world where we have weapons just unimaginably destructive weapons. So if we don't think that a stable global system of the kind we currently have can go on forever, and if we do think, or maybe you don't, but if you do think that um, the breakdown of such a system is likely to trigger massive violence, then we have to ask a rather depressing question. Are we doomed? Are we inevitably going to stagger toward the annihilation of the human race? well, you probably won't be surprised to hear I I have some thoughts on that, too. But to find out what they are, you're going to have to read my book. So thank you very much for listening this evening. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Ian. I mean, you're welcome to... To either stand there and take the questions, oh, no, I'm, I'm happy or you're welcome to come, welcome to come uh, in. Always happy to sit down and uh, relax a bit. I think to try and maximise the number of questions that get asked, uh, we might take them in groups of three. If, when I indicate to you it's your turn to ask a question, if you could wait a couple of seconds before, <clears throat> as the roving mic gets to you. Remember, all of this is being recorded, so we would like to get your questions so, on record. So keep it well. clean. Okay, shall we begin? Okay. I'd like to see. Okay, everyone who's got his hand up is a man. Uh. Um. Ah. <laughs> so can we begin with Letitia? If we could have the microphone down here. <clears throat> so we'll collect three questions. Sounds good, I'll write them down. Okay.
2: Thank you, Professor Morris, for the really interesting lecture. Um, My name is Leticia, and I'm representing a group of students who participated in the pre-lecture discussion. So during the discussion, there was one question that came up which all of us were quite curious about. Um, Given the rise of intrastate conflict since the end of Cold War, it may seem that internal pacification may not always work do you think that matter in the larger picture of declining rates of violent death thank you
0: thank you Leticia okay I'll take another question downstairs and then I'll come upstairs so if the gentleman here
2: thank you professor I'm a student from the Department of War Studies at King's College London and appropriately my question is about war. you pointed out that despite technological advances in the conduct of war Societies have nonetheless been strengthened and managed to reduce violent death rates nuclear weapons aside are the two variables completely independent of one another have changes in warfare affected the development of civilization. Thank you.
0: Excellent, and if we could get the gentleman in the back with the Hi, I'm not not a student.
1: Thanks very much for the lecture Uh, my variant of the bad dictator question was um, a kind of non-violent death so things like suppressed birth rates due to one child policy or you know perhaps famine in north korea where you perhaps didn't have violent death but um, a large society was able to organize less people living kind of (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's a very antiseptic way of describing yes. it. less people. We're not killing you, we're just making less people living. <laughs> um, yeah, well, the great question. The, the tr- uh, I mean, the trouble with uh, you know, the groups of questions thing is that it becomes tempting to sort of degenerate into a mini-lecture by, mm. by way of an answer. So I'll try, try to keep it short, but the problem is, I, mean, I think they, they do all raise a lot of issues. And so um, the, the first point about you know, internal conflict and you know, obviously with seeing... Um, as a number of people have pointed out, at one point it looked as if we were seeing this process where, as the number of interstate wars declined, um, especially since 1989, the number of civil wars was going up. And I went to a talk recently which suggested that, that actually is not quite what's happening. But certainly, yeah, we're seeing a lot, a, a lot of internal civil conflict. And um, my take on this, for, for what it's worth, is that. Um, increasingly the uh, you know, the success of the the global cop type of organisations that they are able to succeed much more in in deterring governments from using violence to solve their problems with other governments, but they have much more difficulty in impacting the use of violence within states. And uh, to to some extent, they can deter governments from using violence against their own subjects, although like like we've seen in Syria, not not all that much. And um, certainly it's difficult for them to deter groups within um, other states that Feel so strongly about some issue that they're willing to turn to violence. It's difficult for any Global Cup to deter that. So, I mean, again, I mean, this is something I think I, I do need to think more about this question. But my sort of preliminary answer would be that this is. Just you know, we, we've seen some success of the Global Cup orders in driving down the rate of interstate violence, um, and perhaps the decline in intrastate violence is something that would follow on later. But yeah, that is something I do want to think more about. And uh, then the thing about developments in war affecting uh, affecting this development of civilization. Yeah, I, absolutely. Yes, I mean I think the the long story. I would say, the sort of long two-sided story is that uh, we've seen you know, increasing increasing power to kill coupled with you know, getting the numbers right, declining actual rates of killing. And this is you know, it's a really paradoxical thing except I think until you start thinking about it in terms of uh, say like almost like a, a game theory approach to this. Saying well, what we're seeing, one of the things we see as the ability to kill goes up, um, the potential um, downside costs of using violence are rising as well. The, the, the more ferocious the weapons, the, the greater the risk of using violence and having having these weapons deployed against you. And so, as we've gone from you know broken rocks through to um, thermonuclear warheads, um, the potential risk of having the the, um, the the great powers use force against you has gone up and up. And I I suspect that you know very <coughs> simplified, of course, but I suspect that the long term story is that these two things go together. And uh, when, in my book of course I try to get into a bit more detail about how it unfolds and there are these numerous major swings away from the trend line And so like I showed in that one slide about how uh, by my estimates at least we see this major spike up in rates of violent death during the middle ages and that I think was very much driven by a transformation in the way wars were fought which is the shift toward um, cavalry being the most effective arm in large parts of the world and the parts of the world where it was easiest to build up big cavalry armies, were outside where the great empires were, out on the steppes and the steppe nomads were able to Devastate these great empires, and we get this long-term trend. I have a wonderful graph that I love that I didn't actually show you tonight. Um, that shows this sort of long-term, from the uh, 180 to 1400, long-term decline in the average size of empires. Wonderful graph. This is about 200 lines on it, and they're all going all over the place. Then I have this magical trend line running through the middle, which um, clearly bears no relationship to any of the actual lines, but it proves what I wanted to say. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the shifts in the way we fight the wars, I think, do affect the way the larger pattern um, plays out. And with nuclear weapons, I think the, the case is very much open at the moment. Whether nuclear weapons have been the greatest force for driving down rates of violent death in history, which many people um, think is the case, and I think you, you can make a very good argument for it by making superpower war unthinkable. Whether they've been the biggest force for peace in history, or whether we're at, we'll actually use them at some, some point, at which they abruptly become the biggest force against peace in history. Uh, but hopefully we will live long enough to find that out. Um, so then the, the last question, yes, um, the, 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 the non-killing situation. Uh, yeah, the non-living situation. Um, yes, I think you know, this gets us into the, um, the, the thicket of definitions. Because any uh, large-scale argument like this, how you define the terms is absolutely crucial to the way the thing plays out. And so I didn't say much about it tonight because I find that um, if you want to put an audience to sleep, the fastest way is launch into a sea of definitions of your terms. So um, I thought I'd leave it and see what sort of questions people raised. Um, and yet defining what you mean by the killing is a, a major part of these arguments. And um, there's like a cottage industry has developed across the last 50 years of uh, counting rates of violent death over history. And there's now dozens and dozens of separate organizations out there producing databases of death. And the main ways they differ is how they define what counts as a violent death. And so some will say it's only a physical act of violence. Like say Danny gets bored of listening to me and stabs me to death with this pen. That counts. Whereas if Danny overthrows the British Government and mass starvation sets in, and I die of starvation. That doesn't count because he didn't physically kill me. So, yeah, and, and then of course, you, you were talking about you know, all kinds of other things as well, uh, uh, all kinds of policies governments can pursue that lead to deaths. What I did in my book, I think there's no one right answer, no perfect definition. What I did in my book was to say, I'm going to. I'm thinking of all of the direct physical killing, and then I'm thinking of... I'm including things like famine and disease that follow on directly from the consequences of war. And through most of history, um, the majority, right up till, uh, in fact, the end of the First World War, the majority of people who died in war almost certainly died from the second-order effects of starvation and disease. And it looked for a long time like World War I was going to be the first one, thanks to medicine, where... Um, um, battlefield deaths outnumber uh, the sort of uh, the, uh, physical, you know, direct physical killing outnumbers the disease and starvation. But then we get the H1N1 flu virus at the end of the war that kills way more people than the shooting did during the war. And so World War I remains with the old school. But now um, you know, the world we've been living in, again, you're barring major nuclear superpower wars. in most of the 20th century it's been the direct killing but yeah I mean the thing is there's no correct answer to the definitional question all you can do is say this is the way I define the terms and give you reasons for why you chose those ways and then wait and see whether if people define the terms in a different way whether it actually leads to a different result I don't think it would but I I would be interested to
0: see how that played out Mm -hmm. interesting (coughs) okay can we we'll have another round of questions maybe this time we'll begin over here
2: Uh, and uh, my question is about in, in interwar um, conflicts as well, um,
0: so would you say diplomacy ever played a key role in
2: preventing war in history, or do you think it 's just the nature of war itself actually prevent war and um, it, in terms of like masculine weapons development, do you think it actually leads to like more small range Um,
0: agent wars in different areas instead of a huge war Mm -hmm. between superpowers. Mm, Thank you. Thank you. So the gentleman in the middle with the black jumper, if you could stand up and then um, we will see. Hi, thank you for your talk. Uh, I think that the idea and notion
1: that we've got richer from war is utterly ridiculous. Because most people throughout war history have lived as slaves with no human rights or any uh, uh, tangible connection with the world they live in. Uh, But I I think the reason why you think that may come from the fact that you come from Oxbridge, and I think this institution, which is an elitist institution, has definitely benefited, not just by money, but political power across the world. And do you agree with that statement, yes or no? Thank you very much.
0: Okay, thank you for the question. Should we get someone upstairs? So perhaps a gentleman in the middle, yeah.
2: Great, thank you very much. Thank you for your speech as well, uh, uh, Mr. Morse. Um, my question is, you, uh, you've basically argued that, that it is the organization of larger and, and more organized bodies that has resulted in the gradual decline in, uh, in uh, uh, mortality. And early on, you basically associated that, those larger organizations with, uh, with governments, with states. By the way, I'm a libertarian, so you'll, you'll get this question <laughs> in a second. The, um, but then later on in the 20th century, you kind of said, but wait a minute, there are a lot more states out there now, but the form that the larger organization has taken is in terms of trade, et cetera. Those two things are not the same. As a matter of fact, you could argue that, and then, and then particularly your argument is that war has been the key factor driving the emergence of these larger organizations. It could, you can, you can make an argument that the war was responsible for the driving of governments, but war is actually antithetical to the second form of larger organization that you talked about in the 20th century. So uh, I think you may try to resolve that by saying that it's really the Robocop that made, that makes the larger trade possible, but there certainly must be other ways in which you can achieve this. And then in general, sorry, I'm, this is somewhat long-winded, but in general, you could also couldn't you also draw the same conclusions that really what has driven down the degree of mortality is the fact that there's been a continuous increase in cooperation, and that and that fundamentally uh, violent death. Uh, has uh, is inconsistent with the with the higher degree of cooperation that we've seen in evolving societies and that's really been responsible for the overall trend rather than the emergence of larger organizations. Okay. So, thank you. I know
0: that there are other questions, but Ian, could I invite you to treat this round first? Sure. Especially yes. the question about how ridiculous we are. Yes,
1: yeah. yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I sometimes think that myself. Too, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. no, the first question about diplomacy. Um, yeah, yeah, of course, diplomacy has played a huge part in, in preventing wars. Um, and uh, yeah, it would be sort of crazy to suggest otherwise. And uh, um, I would tell you in the recent example of the discussions over what to do about the potential of Iran building a a nuclear weapon. I mean, there were many people around the world who felt that diplomacy could not possibly resolve this problem. Um, And it remains to be seen, obviously. Uh, We will see whether diplomacy has successfully permanently resolved this problem, but it appears to have done so. And um, I think... uh, talking and fighting always go along together. And I, I think uh, Klaus Fitz was quite right to say that fighting is a continuation of politics by other means. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, the, the two definitely go together. But, I mean, you, the specific thing you raised about big weapons leading to m- more small wars, I think that's absolutely right. I think that um, something that, we've seen I think twice now in recent history under both the, the British and the American Globocops is that they uh, have a lot of success in deterring wars between great powers because they just make it very difficult for you if you get involved in this kind of thing. Much, I mean like we were talking about with the first round of questions much less success in Um, dealing with the the lower-level stuff. And we've seen a remarkably similar development in the late 19th and, again, early 21st century, where in very similar parts of the world as well, um, say from Sudan area over to Afghanistan. um, The late 19th century, the British Globo Cup gets involved in a series of wars against Islamist uprisings, which um, often involve people blaming the British directly for all of the problems they're facing. The British find it extremely difficult to to, to deal with these challenges um, because um, this is sort of not what the British military was designed for. And the British find themselves fighting a war against Islamists in um, the Sudan, fighting um, wars against somewhat Islamist um, resistance in Afghanistan. Um, Strikingly similar places and somewhat similar enemies to what the US has found itself fighting uh, in the last few years. And I think this is not a coincidence. I mean, I think that the Globo Cups created situations in which other national governments don't want to take them on head to head. You've got to be as crazy as Saddam Hussein to think you're going to be able to do that. But actors of other kind. And actors of non-state organizations um, sometimes do see the possibility of making major successes for themselves by using violent means. And I think similar set of incentives applied the late 19th and again the early 21st century. So I think it really is an interesting analogy. The second question about the, the idiots of Oxbridge, um, yeah, well, I would have been disappointed if we got the whole way through uh, this talk without a, a single question of that kind. Um, more than one, I start to get uncomfortable, but yeah, this one, um, yes, uh, that I am from Oxbridge. Let me just start with that. I, am, I spent five years in Cambridge. I was an undergraduate at Birmingham, then did a PhD in Cambridge, uh, and then two years of a postdoc fellowship there. Um, I wouldn't myself say I'm part of the Oxbridge elite that has profited from centuries of war. Um, my, my, my dad left school when he was 13 years old to go and work down a coal mine. Um, my mother left school when she was 14 to go and work as a filing clerk in a civil service office. Um, I am the First person in my family to have gotten a university degree. I was only the second person to complete high school. My my older sister, only slightly older sister, um, is, is here in the audience. She's the first person in our family to complete high school. Well, Oxbridge isn't here to to defend itself. Um, Oxbridge has benefited from the largesse of the states like any educational institution has done. I mean, I I teach at... uh, If you want to attack something, attack the place I teach at now, Stanford University, um, which is a private institution which charges something like $30,000 a year tuition for you to go there. It was founded by Leland Stanford Senior, who was a classic robber baron. Um, He was responsible for the deaths of many thousands of indentured Chinese laborers brought over to build the railroads that he controlled. So he's a thoroughly bad man in many, many ways. Um, And uh, and what he did, of course, was only made possible by the fact that the U.S. government had succeeded in driving the native populations off its land to create the USA, Um, and and he was then able to become very rich it. So I mean, again, you know, Stam- Leland Stanford's largesse was directly the result of um, of state action creating this government, that uh, government creating this situation that allowed him to profit very, very much. Uh, and yet, I mean, all the same, in Stanford University, although. Uh, on on the books, it costs you something like $30,000 a year to go there. The average Stanford student pays less in fees than the average British university student because of the success of the American government in creating a situation where a small number of people could become very, very rich. Uh, People who then gave what is it? is it, 20 billion? I mean, forget how many obscene numbers of billions of dollars we've got in endowments. We are now able to provide um, almost free education to most of our students. So every year, the trustees discuss whether they just abolish fees altogether. And this, I think, I mean, the reason I'm going uh, off on this little rant um, is because I think this is a classic example of how This whole story about war and violence and government, it's constantly a two-sided story. We're talking about these horrendous processes of destruction and violence and untold cruelty, and yet so many of the things we think of as the good things in our lives today have been provided by this process. And we can cheer ourselves up by prettying up history and saying it's all been nice and all the good things come from nice people, but they don't. Um, most of the good things come from truly horrendous people like those Assyrian kings I showed. And uh, so, yeah, and I'm sure my, my experience of Oxbridge was that there's some pretty horrendous people there. But I don't think they're actually any more horrendous than the rest of us. There's a ringing endorsement. Um, <laughs> the, the final, the, the last question um, from the gentleman, I've forgotten where you were sitting, who... Uh, Oh, yeah, self-identified as a libertarian. i got to say, since I went to Freedom Fest, my respect for libertarians has gone up through the roof. <laughs> I used to think you were all barking mad Um, and now I think you're all a bit peculiar but you're you're not actually barking mad and one of the things that really impressed me there was the the seriousness and intellectual honesty which um, is something in academia we don't always get that kind of level of intellectual honesty people in in the Freedom Fest organisation they went out of their way to find speakers who would come in holding views diametrically opposed to most of their members and had, had these serious debates and people Actually listen to what you said. You know, as I mentioned, they didn't actually believe what I said, but they listened to what I said. And uh, I think you know, universities could learn a lot from that. Um, but then uh, the, the question I mean, um, the, the question you were asking was about war and larger, large, larger economic, yeah, large, That's right, larger economic organisations. And maybe the whole trade network thing is completely separate from the stuff I was talking about with war. And yeah, I mean, um, uh, maybe, uh, maybe I didn't. Uh, Put my point very well, or maybe I'm just flat wrong. Of course, another possibility. But uh, it seems to me that it's very difficult to separate the two. Uh, that in in pre-modern times, on the whole. Um, economic networks tended to be confined within the political networks so you would get say trade networks within the Roman Empire, trade networks within Han Dynasty China and there were, there were networks stretched across but they were very small and very fragile and up till quite recent times that was still the way governments thought about this and you know they took mercantilist policies, policies that said that the way to create more trade and to enrich ourselves is to conquer stuff and control these trade routes and keep foreigners out and, because the, the genius of Adam Smith was saying, no, it doesn't actually work like that. But Smith was not saying for a moment that the state backs out of the economy altogether and that we just let let everybody, it's a free-for-all. Everybody goes out there and does whatever they want. And Smith was very clear. I mean, one particular passage where he's talking about the the Navigation Act, so these laws the British passed in the 17th century excluding foreign traders, uh, the Dutch in particular, from British trade with Britain's North American colonies. And Smith says, well, you know, from an economic point of view, this is the stupidest thing you could possibly do because you're constricting the size of the market, and the size of the market is what drives the amount of wealth and enriches everybody. And so, from a purely economic point of view, Britain should um, repeal the Navigation Acts and let everybody trade as they want. However, he then goes on to say, um, Economics is not the only important thing in the world. Security is more important. And he says that in reality, the Navigation Acts are a very wise piece of of, um, legislation. And in the current environment, Britain is absolutely right to pass these laws. And he did say, of course, that if Britain were to let the American colonies go free, uh, would enrich both Britain and, and the American colonies because he's absolutely right about that the British government was saved to the trouble of having to decide whether to let the American colonists go free by the fact they kind of walk away um, but um, he I think had no illusions whatsoever that the market can only work if people play by the rules of the market and you have to have an enforcement agency that you can't just rely on it to bubble up from the bottom and I think I think this has—I mean, I would say—this has been our experience in the last couple of hundred years. Um, there's a balance between the market and government, and things go badly for people when either one becomes too powerful. And um, I know this is a, you know, an appallingly wishy-washy centrist position to, to, to view of the world to take. But I, I do think this has been um, our experience in the last couple of hundred years, when either the market or, or government become too powerful, and the other side becomes too weak, um, things start to go really badly.
0: <clears throat> Thank you. It's, it's not at all wishy-washy. It's exactly the kind of nuanced, subtle argument that I think that... <laughs> That's so much a better best, way to put it. ...as <laughs> thinking always shows. Now, I'm afraid, I know that you know lots of people still have their hands up, and I promised I would come back. I'm afraid I'm going to have to break my promise, because we've, re- we've gone past time, and we're, we really can't do that. But for those who do want to continue this conversation, um, there's a book sale taking place right outside this theatre. Ian's book is on sale, and then there's a book signing that to follow. So if you go out, buy the book, come back up on stage, get the book signed. There'll be a nice little uh, conversation you can have with uh, Professor Morris. Uh, before everyone goes, I would like to thank all of you for coming, and for your obviously energetic participation. But most of all, I would like you to join me in thanking Professor Ian Morris for a truly wonderful.